Hey, it's good to be back with you guys. I, I think, although I think Dustin and, and Rankin did a terrific job in my absence over the last few weeks, please show them your appreciation if you would. Um, you bet. Once, uh, one evening uh, while I was on vacation, I picked up my Bible for my own devotional reading. And the passage that the schedule that uh, I used, told me that I was supposed to read uh, a passage from Daniel chapter 7. Now, uh, you don't need to turn there because that's not the passage that we're going to look at uh, today, but on this particular day of my vacation, that's the passage that I was reading, Daniel 7. And you may not know this, I, I don't know, maybe you do, but Daniel chapter 7 in and of itself is a monumentally important chapter of prophetic scripture. And Going into it, I, know, I knew that. I knew how monumentally significant it was. But there's this one part uh, of Daniel 7 in which Daniel is given uh, a vision into the very throne room of God. And I'm going to, let me just read this to you. Daniel says, as I watched, thrones were set up, and the ancient one took his throne. His clothing was snow bright. And the hair on his head is white as wool. His throne was flames of fire with wheels of burning fire. That sounds like a Johnny Cash song, burning fire. <laughs> a surging stream of fire flowed out from where he sat. Thousands upon thousands were ministering to him, and myriads upon myriads attended him. Now, uh, as I was reading this, I was alone. The house was empty. It was in my office upstairs in my house. It was dark outside. And I'm a little embarrassed to say that my first reaction to this passage was, this freaketh me out. <laughs> Flames of fire, wheels of fire, a surging stream of fire. That, I mean, it freaked me out. But then that passage in Daniel 7 reminded me of another passage in the prophet Isaiah in which Isaiah is also given a vision into the throne room of God. And so I flipped over and read that passage. I wanted to see how Isaiah responded to it. And when Isaiah sees into God's throne room, he says, Woe is me, I am ruined. Now, when I read that, I was reading it in the NIV, so I checked the King James Version. And in that version, instead of saying, Woe is me, I am ruined, Isaiah says, Woe, I am freaketh out, which made me feel better about my reaction to the whole thing. Both of those visions into God's throne room convey the reality of God's transcendent majesty, his, his set-apartness, the scorching purity of his holiness. This isn't a God with whom you trifle. You don't approach him casually. No, these are, these are visions of a God who is to be adored and to be worshipped for his glory and his truth and his holiness. Imagine, imagine for the moment that you had never read or heard anything about the Bible before, and you read those passages, and you are, like me, freaked out, scared, so much so that you swear that you're never going to read the Bible again. But then, I don't know, something happens, and curiosity gets the best of you, and you just randomly open the Bible again, expecting to read something equally frightening, but instead, you happen to land on this particular passage. Let me read it to you. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Can you imagine how difficult it would be for a person who had never read the Bible before to reconcile those descriptions of God? On the one hand, frighteningly holy and transcendent, 
And on the other hand, so infinitely loving for the world that he created that he would give his one and only son to die for it. How incomprehensible this God is, you might think. And in a sense, you would be right. This morning, we begin a series in which for the next four weeks, we're going to be focusing on just one verse, John 3.16. Find John 3.16 in your Bibles if you have one this morning, in some form, whatever form you have it, John 3.16 in the New Testament, Gospel of John. In John 3.16, most of you know, I mean, it's one of the most recognizable verses in all of the Bible. You've probably seen someone holding a sign up with John 3.16 on it during extra points and field goals during NFL games. Uh, People put it on their business cards, wear it on their T-shirts, plaster it on billboards. In-N-Out Burger famously puts it on their soda cups. Like anything else, our familiarity with this verse tends to breed a kind of apathy toward it. That's just part of being human, you know? But for those who would stop and notice, some of the greatest realities of life are packed into this verse. I want you to do me a favor. I want to, let's read the words of this verse out loud together and notice them as you read the words. We'll put it on the screen. Here we go. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, think about the importance of those words. God, love, the world, the Son of God, faith, perishing forever, living forever. Whoever, that's you or not. These are the greatest realities of life. What could be more important? What could be more relevant for you right now? What could be more urgent for you or momentous for you than to know where you stand in relation to what God says to you in this verse? As I said, we're going to spend four, work, four weeks just looking at this one verse, breaking it down in the hopes of understanding it better maybe than we ever have before, but also in the hopes of breaking through the fog of familiarity that causes us to miss just how remarkable this one verse of the Bible is. One author described it, one author described John 3.16 this way, he called it a 26-word parade of hope, brief, brief enough to write on a napkin or memorize in a moment, yet solid enough to weather over 2,000 years of storms and questions. John 3.16. Well, to understand any particular verse of Scripture, you must examine it in its context. So let's go back just a little bit to the beginning of John chapter 3, and let's get the context. Let me set the stage for you. It is nighttime in Jerusalem. And a man named Nicodemus wants to meet with Jesus. Now, here's what we know about Nicodemus. First of all, we know that Nicodemus was a very religious man, a well-known member of the Jewish religious ruling class known as the Pharisees. He was an elite scholar of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. He has impeccable credentials and an enormous amount of clout. Verse 1 tells us that he was a member of the ruling council of the Pharisees. He was an older man, highly successful, very respectable. As a Pharisee, Nicodemus is a very moral person. So this is a man, I want you to understand, this is a man of 
high integrity, high intellect, very religious, very successful person. Tonight, though, Nicodemus wants to meet with a backwater carpenter turned rabbi named Jesus. Backwater or not, Nicodemus has seen the miracles that Jesus has done, and so he wants a dialogue with this Jesus. But it's very dangerous for a man of Nicodemus' reputation to speak with Jesus in broad daylight. His colleagues would surely ostracize him, if not worse. The Roman Empire is none too pleased with Jesus either. And so the darkness of night is Nicodemus, his, his ally. He slips out of his home unseen through the cobbled winding streets of Jerusalem to the small little house that Jesus is staying in. And he says to Jesus, you can see, he says, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. Now, stop there for just a moment. You, you don't expect this of a Pharisee. Everything that we typically hear about the Pharisees, this is not something that you would expect. This is a very generous, very sincere way for Nicodemus to begin this conversation. He's not trying to trick Jesus. He's not condescending to him. There's no trap that Nicodemus is setting here. He calls him rabbi, a teacher from God. Even though Jesus has never gone to school, has no credentials, he hasn't come up through the pharisaical ranks. He calls him rabbi, teacher of God, very generous, very open-minded of Nicodemus. Nicodemus must have traveled a long way to get to this point, and I don't mean physically. I mean emotionally and spiritually. Imagine a, imagine a world-renowned heart surgeon asking questions about surgery to a hospital orderly. Or a Nobel Prize winning physicist asking questions about science to a high school science teacher. And that's the distance Nicodemus has had to travel to dialogue with this backwater miracle worker. He doesn't know what we know about Jesus. And so again, this is very open, this is very generous, this is very admirable of Nicodemus. And so he says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs that you were doing if God were not with him. In other words, uh, I've seen your work, Jesus. It's, it's quite impressive. And I suspect that Nicodemus was waiting for Jesus to reply in kind. And I've heard about you too, Nicodemus. You're quite a holy man. Your academic credentials are impressive. Your insights on the Torah profound. Your good works beyond question. Your character unimpeachable. But Jesus says none of that. Instead, he cuts to the chase and he says to Nicodemus, verse 3, he says, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now, Jesus uh, might as well have said, one day man will travel to the moon or one day computers will do most of humanity's work. Nicodemus is absolutely stunned. And you can see it by his question in verse 4. He says, how can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. He's rattled. He's rattled. And you can almost hear it in, you can almost hear his nervous laughter after he asked this question question. Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. <laughs> that kind of thing, you know. He's rattled. The theological sand upon which he's built his life, it's cratering. 
Jesus explains this born again thing in verse 6. Skip on down, verse 6. Jesus says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. Now, this is all very theological, but what Jesus is telling Nicodemus is that a coat of paint on rotten wood doesn't make the rot disappear. You can tell a person not to, drink, not to dance, not to drink, not to play cards, whatever set of religious rules that you have. This is, you can put a coat of paint on the outside, but it doesn't change their real problem. And what he's saying is that the problem is that as descendants of Adam, as human beings, we're all born. You mean we're all born with a rotten heart. And the only way to change a rotten heart is to get a new one. And the only, only the Spirit of God can give you a new one, thus the idea of being born again. In other words, Nicodemus, Jesus is saying, you need something supernatural to happen in your life. Morality, not supernatural. Religion, it's not supernatural. They're just coats of paint. You need to be born again. And I hope you get the gravity of this. Jesus is telling Nicodemus that everything he's built his life on, all the decades of religious training and moral scrutiny, he's saying to Nicodemus, nothing you've done counts. You've got to start over. You must be born again by the Holy Spirit. He must enter your life and give you a new heart. And you can see, you can see in verse 9 how stunned Nicodemus is. He repeats the same question he just asked in verse 4, but he's so shaken, he can't even formulate the whole question. All he can say is, how can this be? If you've ever been so shocked, so stunned, so confused, so caught off guard that you can't believe what you just heard, and you could barely formulate a response? Like imagine, imagine... Um, Imagine getting a phone call from someone who tells you that the person you thought all of your life was your dad isn't really your dad. Or imagine after 20 years of marriage having the police show up at your house and tell you that your husband is married to three other women and has three other families in three different states. You know how you would feel in that moment? Like you'd hear it, but you wouldn't really... You'd, You'd have a hard time formulating what you want to say. That's where Nicodemus is. How, 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 can, this, how can this be? It's a theological earthquake that he's experiencing, and the sand beneath him is giving way. And then, then come the 26 words that we're looking at in this series that would have just completely done Nicodemus in. Skip down to verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, you uh, might or might not realize this, but there's actually a great deal of uncertainty about whose words these are. Uh, some of your Bibles include them as part of Jesus' comments to Nicodemus. Others see them as John speaking, reflecting back years later and synthesizing what he's learned from Jesus. If Jesus said them, it's fascinating that the text never records Nicodemus' reaction. He might have been so overwhelmed that he just passed out. But even if Jesus didn't say them, they're still the inspired word of God. And these 26 words turn everything Nicodemus had ever known upside down. 
I want to just make three observations this morning on this first uh, phrase alone in this verse. For God so loved the world. Three quick observations on this first phrase alone. The first observation is pretty quick, and, and, and this will be more of a surprise to people in our culture than it would have been to Nicodemus, but, but I want you to notice uh, how the personhood of God is emphasized in this passage. The personhood of God. Now, uh, remember that this is the same God that Daniel and Isaiah recorded in their visions of God that I talked about earlier in the Old Testament, the transcendent eternal God with whom you don't trifle, whose holiness is like a burning fire. Daniel and Isaiah and the other prophets in the Old Testament who descri all describe God as personal, not just some mere force. He's not the force in Star Wars. He's not the universe. He's not energy, but he's a person. And John 3.16 echoes this and draws out the logical implications of God's personhood. As a person, he thinks and wills and feels. He feels love. And so he wills to send his son as a sacrifice for human sins. The personhood of God is emphasized here. Not just some impersonal force or energy or the universe, but a person. Which leads to my second observation on this first phrase. And that is the posture of God. The posture of God. And by that I mean his primary attitude toward people. What is his posture toward us? Because to listen to some people, he's just fed up with us. He's disappointed with us. We're still, he's furious with us. We're, we're, we're all sinners and he's just disgusted with us. This is frankly, how most of the Pharisees felt. They were disgusted with ordinary people other than themselves, of course. They, they weren't ordinary. They were extraordinary, they thought. And they were disgusted with everyday sinners. In their way of thinking, and to many people's way of thinking, God hates sinners. And this is still the predominant view of God that people, many people, have been taught. Anyone remember Westboro uh, Baptist Church and the signs that they used to hold up? God hates fags. Remember that? Signs like those. This is the version of God many people have been taught, that God just hates people. A number of years ago, I was reading a book uh, some of you have read probably called uh, Ruthless Trust by Brennan Manning. And I marked a section for myself to remember in which Manning asks the question, is God different from our perception of him? And he goes on to ask more questions. Let me read this to you. He says, Why do campus ministers at Christian colleges and universities spend an inordinate amount of time with incoming freshmen who abandoned God, church, and religious practice the moment they split from parental sanction? Why does the National Guild of Christian Psychiatrists report on the widespread phenomenon of clients tormented by intense feelings of guilt, shame, remorse, and self-punishment? Why does the melancholy spirit of Chekhov's plays, you are living badly, my friend, haunt the Christian conscience? Why is the local church often a dispirited assembly of brooding hamlets and wiped out willy lomans? Why do alcoholism, workaholism, and other addictive behaviors continue to increase within the faith community? 
Why do we content ourselves with the shallow trivializing of our lives and our dreams with so much of what today passes for spirituality? And then he, then he answers the questions. He says, 37 years of pastoral experience with Catholics, mainline Protestants, evangelicals, fundamentalists, Seventh-day Adventists, blacks, whites, Asians, and Hispanics tell me unmistakably that many a believer's perception of God is radically wrong. Radically wrong. How can that be? When we have the Bible's revelation of God Himself, how can our perception of God be so radically wrong that someone would walk around and hold a sign up that says God hates who? Anybody. How could we do that? And you wouldn't know what the verse that follows John 3.16 is. I, I, not is. I know what you're going to say. Yeah, John 3.17. No, I, I'm not, not, not that. <laughs> not that. You, do you know what it says? You know what it says? It says, for God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, <laughs> but to save the world through him. I think that would be a surprise to many people that God didn't send his son into the world to condemn because that's so much of what Christians often do is condemn. How would it change your life? I'm not talking about just your spiritual life. I'm talking about your whole life, like your emotional well-being, your intellectual well-being. If you could just come to a place where you believed what Jesus said, that God loves you because he created you, not because you're moral and religious and upstanding, not because of your prayer life or your Bible study, and not some future version of you all cleaned up and whitewashed, but the present version of you, just as you are in the midst of your sins, in the midst of your deceptiveness, in the midst of your addiction, in the midst of your hypocrisy, in the midst of your obsessiveness, whatever your issue is, that's the message of John 3.16. The posture of God is that He loves people because He created them. That's the posture of God. I want to end on this last observation today. And it's the people of God. I want you to see something about the people of God here. For Nicodemus, the only people God loved were the Jews, and really only the religious elite Jews. That's it, no one else. He'd always been taught, Nicodemus had always been taught a nationalistic version of religion, essentially a racist version of religion. God loves only Jewish people. If Jesus said these words to Nicodemus, you could have knocked him over with a feather. Or if this is John's commentary, John himself being Jewish, this would have been shocking to any Jewish person who read it. This idea that God loved the world, not just Jews, but Gentiles too, which I suspect most of us in this room are, that would have shocked, that would have knocked Nicodemus or any other Jewish person over. With a feather, the, with a feather. The, the Jews thought Gentiles were disgusting, ungodly, uneducated barbarians. Now, how did they come to feel that way about Gentiles? Way back in the Old Testament, God told their most famous forefather, Abraham, that he had chosen Abraham and his descendants to be the people through whom God's grace was proclaimed to every nation. Israel, as a nation, the Jewish people were to be a light 
to the Gentiles, a blessing to the nations. But here's what happened. And you can think, you can, I think you can understand it, how easily this could happen. Over time, they began to think of themselves as special. That's why God chose us, they reasoned. They failed to see God's choice of them as the Jewish people as a manifestation of God's grace, that they were as undeserving as the rest of humanity. No, they felt themselves superior, superior to Gentiles. And so they refused to be the light God called them to be. And in fact, their hatred for Gentiles became a sign of themselves, a sign to themselves of their righteousness. Like the fact that you hate Gentiles, that proves that you're righteous. Uh, the writer Anne Lamott once commented that you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people that you do. The people of God include all of the people you like and all the people you don't. The people who are like you, the people who aren't. Blue collar, white collar, educated, uneducated, white, black, Asian, Hispanic, Middle Eastern, Indian, Democrats, Republicans, Socialists. These are all the people whom God loves. Now, be very careful because I don't want you to walk away with a gooey misunderstanding that because God loves everyone, we'll all go to heaven. No, Jesus himself said, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. You must be born again, see? You need a new heart. The one that you were born with is rotten. You need a new one, and only the Spirit of God can give you a new one. Have you been born again? If you're like Nicodemus, thinking that your moral character covers up your rotten heart or your religiosity or your church attendance or whatever, if you think all of that covers up your rotten heart, you are fatally in error. You think you understand the gospel, but you don't. You need to be born again. The question that I kept asking myself as I was studying this was, I wonder whatever happened to Nicodemus. Was he ever born again? Anything changed with him? After Jesus was crucified, a man named Joseph of Arimathea asked to take Jesus' body off the cross. After Jesus had died, he wanted to take it off the cross and prepare it for burial. John writes, in John chapter 19, he writes this, he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had been had ever been laid, and because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. This man who had fearfully visited Jesus under the cover of darkness now boldly identifies himself in the light of day as a, as a disciple of Jesus. 
But I want you to notice something else. In ancient cultures, the only people who ever, ever, ever washed and prepared a dead body for burial were women or slaves because it was considered, and it was, foul, terrible, and horrible work. A man of a particular rank would never, never, ever do such a thing. But both Joseph and Nicodemus did it. What does that mean? Well, it means something has changed in Nicodemus. On the one hand, he's more courageous and more manly than he's ever been as he identifies with Jesus. On the other hand, his male pride is gone. His cultural pride is gone. His class pride is gone. He was both bolder and more humble at the same time. Why? Why? Because his whole identity had been pulled up and replanted in new soil. This is what it looks like when a person has been born again and is given a new heart by the Spirit of God. It's not. It doesn't look like I don't play cards anymore. I don't dance anymore. I don't dance because I'm terrible. But that's not about religion. It doesn't look like that. It doesn't look like I follow some set of rules. That's not what a new heart looks like. A new heart looks like massive, overhauling change, life overhauling, personality overhauling change. That's what it looks like when a person has been born again and is given a new heart by the Spirit of God. Have you been born again? I know you have a reaction to that phrase, born again. It's often so used in such goofy ways in our culture that to say I've been born again, well, that sounds just very, well, that sounds goofy. But that's only because of the way that people make it sound. It's not goofy. Jesus was speaking about a profound theology. You must be born again. Have you been born again? Or are you counting on, I don't know, the fact that you go to church, the fact that you're a moral person, the fact that you're a good person? Are you counting on that? Because that's just a pain of coat on a rotten heart. You must be born again. In other words, you must come to a place where you come to the cross of Jesus Christ and say, look, like everyone else, I'm a sinner. I need changed. I bring my sins to the cross. Lord Jesus, forgive me for being a sinner. Be my Savior. And the Bible says that when you do that, that there is this supernatural thing that happens. I'm not saying you feel it. It's not like all of a sudden you start shaking or something, but there's this supernatural thing that happens, that the Spirit of God enters your life, and He gives you a new heart, and over time, this will change you. It'll change everything about you over time. Have you been born again? For others of you, I, you know, you have, I know that you have been born again. But do you know someone right now? Is there someone that you know who needs to be born again? It might be someone that you really don't like. 
Maybe if you were honest with yourself, you would even say, I hate that person. That person is a person God loves so dearly that he sent his son to die for them. Would you just pull them up on the movie screen of your mind, that person, and would you now just bow your heads and whisper a prayer for that person who needs to be born again but hasn't been? Would you do that right now? Just bow your heads, whisper a prayer for that person. Or, on the other hand, if you have never been born again, this would be the time. In the privacy of your seat, to invite the Lord Jesus Christ to be your Savior, to say, to acknowledge, to humble yourself at the foot of the cross and say, I am a sinner. I need forgiven. I need a Savior. My heart is rotten. You might be a really good person, but if you've never been born again, your heart is still rotten. Would you acknowledge to the Lord Jesus Christ that you're a sinner and the Lord never turns away people who come to Him humbly? He will give you a new heart through the Spirit of God. This is your chance. Be born again this day, this morning. Be born again. Lord Jesus Christ, every person in this room needs to be born again. Some have been, some have not been. I pray for those who have not been, that maybe today your Spirit would do something in them that I don't know. It's never happened before. Maybe they've never understood this before, but that you would penetrate their hearts in a new way. For those who have been born again, Lord, for all the names of people that are going up in prayers to you right now, Lord, would you hear those prayers and would you bring those people to you? It may be tomorrow. It may be today. It may be a year from now. It may be 50 years from now. But Lord, would you bring those people to you, to a saving relationship with you so that they do not perish? but have eternal life. Thank you, God, for your personhood and, and for your posture toward us. Thank you for your love for people, the whole world, all people. Thank you for your holiness, your transcendence. And thank you for your grace that I desperately need. And it's in your name that we pray this morning. Amen. Amen.